Welcome to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. I'm this week's host, John Horner Eibler, and it's really good to have you joining us. This is a recording of one of our adult forums uh, that we're doing on the morning of April 11th. And uh, our facilitator of discussion for this is going to be a member of our adult programs team, Brandon Nye. And he's going to be chatting with uh, Deborah Newstad, who's our special guest this week. Deborah is going to be talking about a number of national and state parks uh, that she and her family visited in the West. It's going to be a very visual presentation, which might panic you a little if you're listening as a podcast. Uh, but the way we've solved this in the past is if you found this podcast at the same place on our website, just up like an inch or two on the screen, is a place that will direct you to Deborah's slides. And so if you would click on that uh, right now, you can take a little time to find it, uh, then you would be in sync with her as she talks through uh, her presentation. Uh, you also, if you're listening in the podcast version, might hear some of the people who are attending this forum live. They might have comments or questions as we go along, and that's just kind of a part of the conversational experience, and I think uh, hopefully adds to uh, making it feel like you're part of a conversation if you're listening to it later. So with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Brandon, and he'll take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Pastor John. Uh, I'll be pretty quick here. Uh, just... Uh, I guess today we'll be talking with uh, Deborah Newstead as she shares her fabulous you know, six-park uh, national park trip she had taken a few years back, um, you know, Zion, Bryce, Capitol Reef, and I think I'm excited just to, to see the pictures and just hear hear her story of just the, the trip. Uh, Deborah, if you want to kind of go ahead. Sure. Can I share my screen now then? I'll go ahead and do that. Um... Okay, let me know if you're seeing this, guys. Yes. We are, okay. perfectly. Okay, all right, excellent. Good. Okay, so um, yeah, let me just let you know, what was interesting is my father-in-law is a, was a geography professor. And one of the places he had never been and was sort of eager to go to was Southern Utah. And it was very interesting because we love to do multi-generational trips in our family. So we went on this fabulous tour of Southern Utah and it was something on my family bucket list. And then obviously having it on my father-in-law's bucket list made it even more special. Um, so basically we had a grand tour of fabulous Southern Utah uh, and Northern Arizona as we reached into the Grand Canyon North Rim. But uh, this was, back in July, August 2014. So obviously some of my recollections of details were a little shaky, but that's what, where the photos are really are very helpful at kind of helping all of us see uh, what these beautiful places have to offer. So there were eight of us, three generations. Um, my my mother-in-law, so Tim's mom and father-in-law, and, and my, myself and Tim, and then our three kids. So we ranged in age from seven to almost 80. So just what's cool about a trip like this is you really get to find a unique blend of things that are gonna interest everybody and keep everyone interested and excited this whole time. There's a 15 days and I would obviously recommend, you're gonna look at this and say, I can't believe how much you fit into 15 days, but I would say with good planning and a lot of um, patience uh, <laughs> and flexibility, you can do it. At the same time, if you have more time, by all means, take as long as you possibly can in these beautiful places and spaces, and you'll see that in a moment. So we covered six national parks, Zion, Grand Canyon North Rim, Bryce, Capitol Reef, Canyonlands, and Arches. We also covered one national monument, five state parks, did four trail rides. Actually, I think I counted now, there's 15 junior ranger badges, so uh, five, five, five of the parks times three kids, and then one trail called Hell's Revenge Trail, which I'll have to show you cool pictures. So we keep going. Um, the five wonderful state parks included Kodachrome, Escalante, Anasazi Indian Village, Goblin Valley, and Dead Horse. And um, for those of you on the screen, you can see sort of here's Kodachrome, Petrified Forest, Anasazi, so you can see our trail really, Goblin Valley and then Dead Horse. You'll see photos from all of those. 
So we started by flying into Las Vegas and actually then drove to Zion and then continued basically heading north uh, east the entire trip, uh, except for the little diverge uh, when we diverged down to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So any questions about that? So it's a lot to cover. <laughs> so, okay. Um, and the reason I say this is because a lot of times people kind of skip over the state parks. And I will tell you that the state parks in Utah in so many ways are almost as spectacular as the national parks, but they're all fabulous and they all have something really cool and special to see. Did you plan to attend all the parks that you had on your list or how did you go about selecting each of these, these parks? Uh, absolutely. So first of all, I'm, uh, for people who don't know me, they don't realize that I'm a planner and this is a spreadsheet. So literally I create very, very detailed spreadsheets and do a lot of research. So between, um, you know, guidebooks, sorry, for those of you on the video, you can see between guidebooks and spreadsheets and really doing a lot of research about what there is to see and do in each park and in each space, that really helps to narrow down to, to certain things. Well, what I will tell you, Brandon, and it's a really good question because one of my advices on this is figure out the things that are super important and essential for you to see on a journey like this and definitely make the reservations for everything that's uh, essential and that has long lead time. So certain things like trail rides going into Bryce Canyon, we definitely had that reserved in advance. Things like that were reserved. At the same time, we didn't know, for example, if we were going to get, if we we're going to have the time to stop at every one of the state parks. So they were on our, our bucket list and it was really time dependent as to whether, and honestly energy dependent as to whether or not we added those on. Things like, um, I will tell you there were things on our optional list that we didn't get to, things like Monument Valley, which would have been a number of hours further out of the way and then back. And based on, uh, if you can see on the map, here's where Monument Valley is. It was, it would have been quite a bit of a divergence from the general path. And we just had to kind of decide, uh, it's gonna be a little bit too much driving to get down to Monument Valley. So things like that. There were a lot of things that were planned and then a lot, there were a lot of things that were, I would say, on the hope to, hope to fit it in list. And we sort of picked and chose from those menus um, as we went through. So great question. And if everyone, anyone wants the spreadsheet, by all means, let me know. It'll save you hours and hours of planning. Okay. So the hey, first Deb, Deb. question. Oh, sorry. This is Leslie O'Connell. Just a question about the time of year. You went kind of in the heart of summer, which I imagine is quite hot in that region. Um, how, so did you do kind of like early mornings and late in the day? Or how did you manage that piece? Um, that's a great question. We, we went at that time of year because that's when kids are off school and because of when Tim can, could get out of work, honestly. Um, so based on his schedule and the kids' schedule really di dictated, um, um, really dictated when we could do this. It, it was not the, it's, it's obviously, it is a hot time of year, but we were able to manage it pretty well, like you said, by early mornings. Um, lots of water, you know, um, things like that, and just pacing ourselves. I would say for people who don't have to go at that time of year, obviously it's much better to go, you know, maybe September, October might be ideal. Um, one, because it's less crowded generally, but also because of the weather. But we, we had great weather, and you'll see there's, the weather's beautiful most of the time. Thanks. Sure. And it's a dry heat. <laughs> So it was no problem. So first we stopped at Hoover Dam. And the reason we stopped at Hoover Dam is because it was so close to the Las Vegas airport that for 45, you know, 45 miles away or something, we just said, let's diverge and go to Hoover Dam. Um, I'm not gonna go into any details about Hoover Dam, but just know that if you're anywhere near the Las Vegas area, it's a, it's a great place to hop off and, and spend several hours or a half a day. Um, I included on the slide some fun facts. But, um, but for the purposes of time, I'm gonna keep going. Um, 
pretty fabulous thing to see and do. And we actually did take the guided tour, including the, um, the power plant and things like that. And again, those are types of things that you do have to reserve in advance. So I would definitely recommend doing that, reserving things in advance where possible. Um, so Zion is uh, Utah's first national park. What I, and, and I know people have traveled to the high points of every state in the country, and they will tell you Zion National Park is their favorite. It's, there's something about Zion, and I don't know what it is, but it is extremely special, great trails. And, and what's neat about this, and, and what I would say is really cool, is because we had people ranging in age from seven to about 80, places with easy trails, things for everyone were really important. Um, and what was nice also about any, almost any of our national parks, if you go, and I've probably been to maybe 20 of them or so, if you were willing to walk away from, you know, the over overlooks and things like that, just 15 minutes, you're usually going to start escaping crowds really fast, you know, and, and Zion is no different. Um, one of the hikes that you absolutely must do if humanly possible in your lifetimes is the Narrows. And you'll see pictures of the Narrows in a moment. Um, one thing that you see in the photos, first of all, we did trail rides. And what makes trail rides fun for all ages is it's a great way to get familiar with the park. You know, it's guided. And then also it's nice for some of the older folks who maybe they couldn't hike as easily but it's a great way to, for them to get into the valleys and into the canyons where they may not be able to hike it. So, but they were absolutely able to do the horse ride. Uh, you see in one of the photos, the kids did uh, the junior ranger badges. So in advance of going, um, you can either print them off or, or you can get them when you're there. There's these junior ranger, uh, junior ranger badges that you can collect in all the, and you have to kind of go, the kids get to go through a number of different activities in each of the parks, and then they, they get to go talk to one of the rangers and show them the work that they've done in terms of seeing the park and understanding, you know, plants and animals and sites within the park, and then they collect junior ranger badges. So that's a nice way to also get the kids really involved and invested, and then if you have you know, adults with you, you learn, you learn just along with them as well. So um, I can tell you that the kids started getting uptight with me after me encouraging them to work on their junior ranger badges so much. So <laughs> there was at one point a mutiny in the trip, but otherwise, um, <laughs> uh, I think today they would probably be thankful that I encouraged them to work on their junior ranger badges. But Zion, um, if you just look at these photos, this is the Narrows. Uh, what was interesting about our, our adventure into the Narrows was we, it was supposed to be extremely rainy. There were supposed to be rains that morning. And because the Narrows is like a slot canyon, you can quickly get flash flooding. So the rangers said, please, you know, this is not the day to go to the Narrows. And I said, look, my father-in-law is almost 80 years old. This is his one trip he will ever get here. We're going to the Narrows. So, uh, so against, you know, ranger suggestions, they said it could get bad around one o'clock. I said, well, then we're going to go into the Narrows before that, and we will get out before one o'clock. So I remember this really distinctly because it was one of those choices where you go, you know, what, when in Rome, this is a when in Rome moment. This is a, you know, we, we're going to find a way to see and do this because it's this person's one shot to see and do this. So we went and rented our gear. You can see the, these special boots that are really good for walking um, in on the rocky bottom of the Narrows. It's pebbly and rocky and, you know, walking on the rocks and things, especially when you can't see your feet, because uh, a lot of times you are walking in the water or sometimes even chest high uh, and, and the poles. So we ended up actually getting those poles and boots at an outfitter the night before so we were outfitted and then the next morning we went into the narrows and one of the reasons that these pictures don't have a lot of people is because this was not the day that was recommended to go in but we went in and we literally were out of the water by one o'clock and the rains and the flash floods never came and i was so thankful that we insisted on when in rome uh 
and to this day, you know, my father-in-law who has Alzheimer's and my mother-in-law who has dementia, both would tell you that this was definitely a highlight of their lives, was to be able to go into the Narrows and see it. So if you ever get a chance, do it. It's fantastic. Um, I would tell you we had waterproof cases for our phones and cameras. We had a dry bag for snacks and lanyards for our water. So you can see where our hands are pretty much free for managing our poles and, and bracing ourselves. So pretty awesome. If anyone has questions, I had been to the Narrows before, um, but this was a, so this was my second time, but next time if we didn't have, you know, such a young and old group with us, we probably could have gone further in, but um, definitely something to see and do, even if it's for a short amount of time. Um, then from Zion to uh, Kanab, Utah, there's some fantastic vistas and wildlife, and you can see all the bighorn sheep on the for those of you who are listening on a podcast, there's a group of about, oh, I don't know, seven or so bighorn sheep and everything that were up on the rocks. You'll have to keep an eye out because they blend into the landscape so well. We also stopped at a place called the Best Friends Animal Sanctuary. For those of you who are animal lovers, this is a no-kill sanctuary that basically has uh, dogs, cats, bunnies, birds, horses, pigs, other barnyard animals, um, come from all over the country, and this is all supported by donation, and it's fantastic. They give free tours, um, including the grand hour and a half tour with a driving tour. They stop at the different places on the campus. It's an enormous campus, beautiful, beautiful, and you know they treat these animals certainly um, like the loved friends that they are, and you know tremendous medical support for them, etc. So if you, I actually have a cousin from California who has gone on vacation to the Best Friends Animal Sanctuary and stayed there for a week and they have housing for their volunteers and they've used that as a vacation to actually just volunteer to help the animals at the sanctuary for a week and people always do that. It's a very, very popular place to visit. So you can see, you get to meet some of the dogs and cats. You can go and um, check out the bunnies, etc. It's really a special place for those of you who are animal lovers to see um, the kind of great work that they do. Then um, on after, after going to uh, Best Friends, we continued down to the Grand Canyon National Park to the North Rim. And most people have been to the South Rim, or many people who pick a national park start, start with the south rim which is fantastic of course but the south rim is much smaller and has about one-tenth the crowd so if you like peace and serenity at a national park the north rim of the grand canyon may be right up your alley it's also about a thousand feet higher than the south rim and about 10 degrees cooler so you know leslie you were asking about the the weather the North Rim, because of the elevation, is a little bit cooler and much more uh, comfortable. A lot of these parks are at pretty high elevations, so a lot of them, it does make them a little bit more temperate than some of the things that you might hit in Southern Arizona, for example. Southern Utah has some higher elevation. There's some great easy um, rim, rock, rim, rim level trails, like the Bright Angel Point Trail, incredible vistas, and one thing that, um, you'll note about the North Rim, because you say, oh, I've seen the South Rim, it's gotta be the same. It's actually not. There's a lot of different plants and animals because of the, because of the temperature and the elevation. It's more, um, there's a lot more plants at the North Rim. Uh, there's, it's a little bit more wet, even though it's not wet at all, but compared to the South Rim it is. So, and it is only open from mid-May to mid-October and is supposedly known for its great fall colors. So again, for those of you who have flexibility in your schedules, the North Rim may be great to go to in the fall. You can see the pictures. And one of the reasons I put this on here is where are the people? If you look at these photos, um, you can see these incredible vistas and you go, where are the people? And you can see in this one large photo, my son Alexander is sitting here uh, in, in the photo. It's hard to find him, but he's, he's up there. And then in this photo, you can see the people way up at the top, very, very small. And the reason I show these pictures is because, 
to understand the scale of things in Utah, it, I'm gonna show you other photos like these where you start to understand the scale of the vastness of Utah and the, and the Grand Canyon is just beyond imagination until you see it yourself. So again, great trails and rim views. You can see some relaxation up here while looking at the most stunning scenery you'll ever see. And then what's also neat about this is being able to go into the canyon. So again, not missing an opportunity to see the side walls of the canyon, we did some mule rides. And again, this is where my father-in-law, who is uh, about 80, found it easy to take a mule ride into the canyon. So that was an awesome way for him to get to see and experience something he probably couldn't have hiked to see and do, okay? So- How far of a hike or mule ride was that? It's about roughly? a two hour. I think this okay. is maybe two or three hours. It was two or three hours, because you go in and then you actually hang out uh, at the, there's sort of a, you only go about midway into the canyon on this. You don't go all the way. They do have mule rides that will take you all the way to the floor and back up, but it's a much longer ride. Um, and certainly it wasn't gonna be as easy to do with young kids. Um, so this one was, and I think there is a, there's a weight limit on most of the mule rides uh, in the national parks. It's I think 220 pounds. So at that time, my husband weighed over 220, so he could not go on any of these mule rides. We basically, I told him, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not in, in the weight range, you can't go on the mule ride. So he wasn't and he missed out on the mule rides, but I think hopefully now he would have lost the, he's, he's probably in better shape now and could do it. <laughs> but, but you can see that what you see is very different if you go into these canyons than what you see at the rim. So it's a great way to get to see in the canyon and do it with all ages. Matthew being seven was too young to do the, the ride into the canyon. So he and my mother-in-law actually took a rim ride so that's a great option as well. You can, you can do a ride around the rim or you can do a ride into the canyon and you, they have different lengths and stuff like that. So you can see there's switchbacks and they go in and, and then they stop for you know 20 minutes or so at the bottom at the kind of a midpoint stop and then you go back up. And the, some of these trails are shared with hikers. So you actually see hikers coming up and down at the same time that you're going on your, with your mules. A quick question from the chat too. Uh, we've talked about reserving in advance. Is there a specific amount of time you need to plan ahead or does that depend on what you're doing? It, it does depend on what you're doing. I mean, obviously the, the more in advance you know your plans, the better it is to make those reservations because things fill up so fast in the national parks. Um, I mean, I would no less than four to six months in advance for some things. It just depends. Um, and I, I'm, I'm hearing that the national parks are getting even more visitors coming up this year because people aren't doing as much international travel. So the sooner you can, you know, book the better. And I do know that the national parks also have a certain timing for how much in advance you need to plan things like cabins and lodging. Mm -hmm. If you want to stay in a national park, I would try to reserve probably close to a year in advance for yeah. lodging inside the park. Um, if you're if you're trying to lodge outside the park, even then for premium lodging or things, if you want to have your own choices, I would be planning at least six to 12 months in advance. But yeah, and I've seen certain activities have rolling windows and others have specific days. So you kind of have to research what your, your, your specific trip to know how far in advance you need to reserve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely things that, for example, at Yosemite National Park, which is not on this particular trip, um, that you would a, a minimum of a year in advance, if not longer. So, um, so that's a great question. And I, I guess because I haven't planned the trip, it, it's been about seven years. I, I, I know that things may have changed in terms of those reservation windows, but I would definitely start planning a trip like this as early as humanly possible. You, you, then you have your choices. Otherwise you may have to kind of uh, juggle things a bit. You can see um, that they do have a, a kind of a lodge. It's not quite as fancy as the ones on the south rim, and, but they also have these really rustic cabins. And one thing to note about these rustic cabins is just, you know, it's a 
great way for the kids to get off of devices or for all of us to get off our devices. There's not a lot of, I don't even remember if there was, there probably wasn't Wi-Fi eight years ago at these places, right? So you're really disconnected. You cannot count on GPS, Wi-Fi, internet access all the time. It's just not that way. It's, you actually won't, in this whole presentation, you probably won't see a screen anywhere. It's, unless it's being used to take a photograph. It's really a way to disconnect with all of that and connect with nature and, you know, all this beauty and, and each other. So that's what also makes a trip like this really special. Okay. Um, we did the ranger talks. I love ranger talks. They're always educational. So one of the first things we always look at, even on the website, sometimes they'll say what time and are there ranger walks and talks. And we always try to fit one or two of those in at each park if we can. Um, this particular one at the North Rim was about the California condor, which was really fun. And obviously she got the kids involved. Ranger got the kids involved. And then there was a Grand Canyon cookout, which was fun for barbecue and some music and comedy, but just a way to mix up the trip again for the kind of range of ages and folks that we had, being able to have these fun experiences made it really special. And because this was one of the places we did not stay with a kitchen because we were in the cabins in the, in the park, it was a nice way to do a cookout and leave the cooking to the Grand Canyon folks. So again, here's some more pictures from um, there were actually a number of lookouts similar to the South Rim, but I believe the South Rim has a shuttle. The North Rim, you don't need a shuttle. You can actually drive, and unless that's changed in the last seven or eight years. But because it gets only a, about a tenth of the visitors, it's, it's much calmer. <laughs> and this was in the summer. So here's Roosevelt Point, named after Teddy Roosevelt, um, because during Roosevelt's visit to the Grand Canyon. This was even before it became a park, I believe, in, 2000, uh, in 1903. He just said, leave it as it is. You can't improve upon it. The ages have been at work on it, and man can only mar it. So he was absolutely in love and definitely one of the fathers of our national parks. And it's always great to see people who understand the need to preserve these special places. So. Um, this, the photos, th these photos are, we, we actually tried taking a road less traveled called Cottonwood Canyon Road. If you ever get to this part of Utah, please try to do it. It's 46 miles, mostly unpaved gravel road through the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. But it can be impassable if it rains, even if you have a four by four. So uh, again, me and the rain are going at it. And uh, we said, well, let's, let's go, let's go. Let's take Cottonwood Canyon Road. So we go on this road um, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. You can see there's nothing and nowhere in these photos, okay? You, it looks like you're on another planet. We're going down this road and we probably get, I don't know, 10 miles in and there's a car coming towards us and it was a ranger. And he said, you're not gonna be able to get through. The rain is coming and it will wash, it, you're, you're not gonna get through. And we had a Suburban and we were, you know, obviously very high off the ground. He said, you, you will not, you'll, you won't get through the road. So you need to turn around. So even the Rangers are out there in the middle of absolutely nowhere, making sure that you're not gonna get stuck because one, you couldn't call anybody from here. This is not a place where you're gonna see another person unless it's someone else trying this impassable road. But for those who happen to catch it on a day where flash floods aren't going to bother you, <clears throat> by all means, fit it into your schedule. You can see, I put a picture on the left-hand side of someone who actually did get through the road because I found it on the internet. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is what we missed, but we're gonna have to go back. So it's still on the bucket list is to go to Cottonwood Canyon Road and to actually make the trip. So is that road actually marked on any of the maps or how do you, how oh, do you yes. find it? Oh, it's absolutely on the maps. It's, it's kind of on the maps, but there's a brochure about the Grand Escalante National Monument and this road, I mean, there's, there's people who blog about this road. It's that type of place. Like it's one of those, if you don't know about it, you don't know about it, but once you do, you've got to put it on your list. 
So there's a lot of places in Southern Utah that are like this, that are this special, that once you know about it, you put it on your list. Okay. So here's where we had gotten off of Cotton Canyon Road, um, even just a little bit immersed into it. And you can see the sky was as black as could be going into Bryce Canyon. This is the rain that they were talking about not going into. Please don't do this. So, um, you know, nearly black skies. So then we get to Bryce Canyon, which has just remarkable scenery and vistas and the hoodoos, which are these crazy irregular columns of rock um, that apparently the National Park Service says exist on every continent, but this is the largest concentration of hoodoos found anywhere on earth. It's on a high plateau and the park's elevation has just a lot of really neat um, flora and fauna. It's really cool. There's a visitor center and ranger programs as with all national parks. Um, and there's a lot of easy to moderate trails. Again, make sure to, if you ever go, def definitely spend time at the rim like everybody does. But it, the best is definitely to go into the canyon via the trails, either by foot or on mules. We absolutely did that. That was probably the favorite mule ride of the trip was going into Bryce Canyon because it is so different from below the rim. <clears throat> so you can see, here's some of the great rim trails and things that you see. Um, Rainbow Point, an elevation of 9,100 feet. So <clears throat> even though you would perceive it to be very hot at an elevation of 9,100 feet, it was pretty moderate. And you can see, um, you know, we're not, we're not, um, it's not overly hot at that point. But tremendous sights. And then one of the photos I took was of this Bristlecone Loop trail that the kids did. And you can see that on these, on these, on the signage around the park, they have the kind of the little emblem of the bristlecone loop. And what the kids had to do as part of their junior ranger badge was to take a piece of paper, you know, their their junior ranger booklet, and a piece of paper and a pencil, and mark that they had been on the loop. So they, you know, kind of like a uh, they, they, they had to rub their pencil over it so that they showed that they had actually been there. It's a really fun kind of way for the kids to collect um, the where have I been in this park and then be able to show it to a ranger. So they actually had to go out to this spot to, to show to the ranger that they had covered this trail. Okay, um, so again, Bryce Canyon being at, you know, almost 9,000 feet, the temperatures were comfortable, it's dry, you know, vistas for 40 to 50, sometimes 60 miles, easy in Utah, really amazing. And then you guessed it, here's the more trail ride. So you can see the difference of going into the canyon, what it looks like from inside the canyon on these photos when you're looking up at the hoodoos. It looks very different than when you're standing at the top. And some of these photos, like I said, they look so much like another planet. The, you can see a trail winding through this, these hoodoos in the sand, it's just incredible. And yet that's where we got to go ride mules. So, any questions so far? Okay. All right, so then again, when I'm talking about scale, this is a photo of Bryce from inside the canyon and you're sitting here going, but you know, where are the people in this photo? And to give you a sense of scale, I'm gonna to point to where the people are. This is a person, this is a person, <laughs> these are people. It's incredible to imagine the scope and the scale of someplace as grand as Bryce Canyon. So there's no crowd there. <laughs> a lot of distancing in that photo. All right. Then um, we were up at the rim, at one of the uh, one of the one of the overlooks, and you can see just the incredible Mother Nature from the sky to the ground, just showing us her awesomeness. Um, this immense cloud and rain coming down miles and miles in front of us, and yet 
we got to view the whole spectacle from where we were standing and watched it rolling towards us. But <laughs> that aside, it was an, an incredible to capture something like that. Just reminds us definitely how humble, <laughs> it, it's very humbling to be in the forces of these ki this kind of nature everywhere you turn. Okay. Um, I'm seeing some, are there any comments in the chat? Yeah, there's oh. one more. Uh, oh, okay, yes, I see this. So many of these areas look deserted. Did you pack food for the day or were you close enough to snack shops to get lunch and restrooms? Well, that's a great question. Um, so Leslie, we, we did, um, most of the time we stayed in places with kitchens and that was on purpose because with eight of us, it would take forever to go to restaurants and find restaurants and eat food. And you know, then you waste actually a lot of the time that honestly, I would much rather be spending in the park. So we got places with kitchens and we made ourselves breakfast and we usually got back in time for dinner or had late dinner. And then we packed a cooler um, full of stuff for lunch or we would eat in the parks or something like that. Um, luckily, these parks actually do have food in them, but because we were so variable, a lot of times we would at least have snacks always, always, always in the car and in a cooler. When we flew into Las Vegas, we actually went to, you know, Walmart or something and bought a cooler. That was, instead of paying for luggage, paying for the cooler to fly with us, we just bought a cooler because it was cheaper than flying a cooler out there. So we just bought a cooler in Las, in, outside of Zion National Park and just dragged it our, the whole way with us. And it was a great way to just pack, you know, snacks and lunches. So great question. But most of the time we, we did planning for which nights were we going to eat in a, you know, in our kitchen. And then I would make sure to get groceries somewhere where there was actually were groceries available. How much water did you carry with on a day? Um, again, it was easy because we had the Suburban, so we just had, you know, bottles of water and stuff, and you can fill up water, and all these places have lodges and things like that, so it was easy to get water and snacks if you really needed it, it's no problem. The one park that I was surprised at, not on this trip, but on another trip, where there really were no services, was Rocky Mountain National Park. There's no place to eat in that park, you have to take your own food in, it was crazy. I don't know if that's changed, but we were surprised at that. That's that's one where I probably needed to have done a little bit more homework. But <laughs> but on these on this trip, no, there's def definitely food available in all of these parks, and no problem, no problem. But I just we it was fun for every night to go back and make a really easy dinner, you know, spaghetti, salad, fruit, and talk about our day and wind down. And then you know, like you said, we got to bed pretty early because we we're pretty tired, and then got back up and got back at it. We don't want to miss any of this fun stuff. Um, so in the Grand Escalante National Monument, which is just, uh, it's, this is, I'm trying to remember how many million, hundreds, I mean, I got to look, but there, it was, it's just thousands or millions of acres of preserved land in this national monument in this, in the part of Southern Utah. And Grosvenor Arch is one of the sites inside that national monument. The arch is nearly 100 feet in diameter. You can walk right up to it, you'll see. And it was named for Gilbert Grossvenor, the president of the National Geographic Society um, and first editor of the National Geographic magazine. So again, for scale in this photo, you can see the arch uh, in the middle of the picture, but here's my daughter, Sarah, walking towards it. So extreme scale, and then you'll see us get close to it. Here's us getting closer to the arch, and, and it's nice. It's a nice paved trail. So if people are, you need a walker or even a, a walker or a wheelchair, people can wheel up to things like this. So I think that there are a lot of places that are accessible in these national parks that, you know, people shouldn't use accessibility as a reason not to see these beautiful spaces. So again, we're gonna start on some of the state parks. One of the first ones we went to was Kodachrome Basin State Park. Um, and because of the way the colors change and the shadows hit these different rock spires in this park, the National Geographic Society asked Kodak if it could name it Kodachrome back in 1949. It's a semi-desert and it's at 5,800 feet. So again, it was warm, but it wasn't crazy hot. It, it was comfortable. 
they, they do say that a lot of these places will get to, you know, 90, 100 degrees in the summer, but the dry heat and carrying water, even having cooling towels, you know, sometimes just having those cooling towels that you can wet and put around your neck made it very, very comfortable. Okay. Most of these state parks have campgrounds too. So for those of you who have an RV or who like to camp, there's places to camp at most of these state parks as well. So sometimes it's hard to get a campsite at a national park, but maybe getting some of these state parks could be an option for you if you love to camp. So then we hit Escalante Petrified Forest, Petrified National Park. And I've actually been to the Petrified National Park in Arizona, but this one is a nice small petrified national park, a petrified state park. So Escalante, this is only 44 miles east of Bryce Canyon. So if you're that close to Bryce, why not take 44 more miles and go see some petrified wood? Because you might not see that as easily somewhere else. Okay, I can tell you getting out to Petrified Forest National Park was a lot, a lot more remote than this was. So if you happen to find yourself in Southern Utah, this is kind of a cool way to see some petrified wood. And they have fossils and there is some camping. You can see in one of these photos, there's a reservoir in the back and there is some camping available on the shores of this state park. So the kids loved running around here and you know there were great trails up going through all the different petrified wood and the juniper trees and things like that. And then my in-laws actually stayed under a nice shaded picnic area, had a picnic, it was all good. So again, these are great places to go with all generations of people and just to see and enjoy these sites. One of the state parks we stopped at next was Anasazi State Park. And that was the where some ancestral Puebloans had had this um, a, a bunch of homes here. They 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 think they found nearly a hundred structures and rooms to have housed as as many as two hundred people in this site. And there were a lot of artifacts and pottery and displays uh, inside the little museum there. So another great stop. It's a nice way to break the trip up too, if you can imagine, you know, with people sitting in a vehicle for a lot of time. You can, you can break these up, stop at these state parks for an hour, two hours, and you know everyone gets out of the car, gets to stretch, and gets to see something new and different. So then we're heading to Capitol Reef National Park, and you can see just beautiful drive, um, great vista, and then we hit Capitol Reef, which is located uh, right in the heart of Red Rock Country. And it's neat because it does have some human history as well. Uh, there's a visitor center and a nature center there with displays, exhibits, and the kids actually participated in a um, ranger program on a, about er erosion. Then there's a, an, a little area called the Fruta Historic District, which was a late 1800s Mormon settlement where there's a school and a farmhouse. They have some orchards that were probably going back to those times. And you're welcome to pick and eat fruit from the orchards. And then there's a lot of scenic drives and hikes also. Capitol Reef a lot of times gets overlooked, but there's a lot of neat history and beautiful sites here as well. Okay. So you can see, um, this is the fruit to grade school that opened in 1896 by the Mormon settlers. There were eight grades in the school with up to 26 students, but it closed back in 1941. And then the kids had to be bused to a local community schools. There are also some really neat petroglyphs on the walls here, which again tells you how old a place like this is. And there's photos of, uh, there's my father-in-law with the kids climbing out on the rocks. So fun for all ages, which is again, the neat part about a trip like this is you really can have fun on this trip regardless of age or stage of life. It's just special to see any and all of these things. And even getting back to these petroglyphs, I recall there being almost like a boardwalk or an easy walk back there. They tried to make it accessible for people. Okay. Is there any questions that anybody have? I know we're getting close to the, the end of the time here. Um, yeah, I'll have to speed up. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I feel, I feel like I'm going in miles, miles, many miles an hour. Um, any questions? Okay. All right, so Goblin Valley, again, this is a bucket list item. I, I don't even think I could have imagined that this existed on earth. This 
looks like you're absolutely on another planet. And I know by looking at this photo, it looks like like a mushroom, mushroom sandstone valley. And you're like, how in the world did you find this? And surprisingly, it's a state park. It's just un incredible. I'm surprised this is not a national park because of course then it would be overrun. But um, if you look, this was made uh, from deposits about 170 million years ago. Some cowboys that were searching for cattle in the late 1920s, they believe were some of the first to discover it because it's so remotely located. And it became a state park only in 1964. And the, there's almost no vegetation or animals because they can, it can only be something that can survive in the desert. Very, very little water in this area. This is definitely where you would have wanted to make sure you had lots of water in your car, you know, things like that, and a lot of gas in your vehicle because you don't want to be stranded in a place like this. But um, but you can see that everyone gets to climb up on the on the really cool goblins. So yeah. as you're driving around, have you found any of the roads to be dangerous or a little more terrifying? No. No, not afraid of anything. No, no. <laughs> when you go to a place like this, I mean, you're so awed by what you're seeing and you love the fact that there's not a lot of crowds. You know, you're in the middle of nature. You're humbled. And, and you know, I didn't ever feel scared. Of course, there were eight of us in the vehicle. So that's one of the reasons not to feel scared as well. We always have each other. And we always had food and things like that. You know, there were always cars passing by. It wasn't, but it wasn't like there was road jams, you know, you know traffic jams. Any of the roads like cut into the side of a hillside where there isn't really any shoulder and the suburban was more of a challenge? Uh, no, I mean, no. there's always narrow roads in places like this, but not mm -hmm. nothing that nothing that would have daunted us. I mean, when you go from Yellowstone, for example, no, when you go from Yosemite to Sequoia, now that's some scary driving <laughs> because that is winding switchback, tight, mm -hmm. tight, tight. That that's that's a tough road. Um, but these roads were not like that. Okay. So arches, red rock wonderland of arches. What I would say is uh, arches is, has great ways to explore both on foot and via car. We spent most of the time exploring on foot. Um, but one thing I will tell you, you, you have to see if you go to arches, if you can do it, is, and this is one where you definitely have to have an advanced reservation, is to see the fiery furnace. It's a very unique hike. Um, and the National Park Service has rangers who will take people into the fiery furnace for, I believe it's, I remember, maybe it's an hour and a half or two hour guided tour. Maybe it's longer. But what's important is they only allow about 100 people per day, maybe 120 people per day into the fiery furnace. So the only way you can see it is through a guide. And the National Park Service takes a number of groups in per day. And they all have to be by, you have to have registered well, well, well in advance to get a slot. And there is one outfitter who is who is allowed to take people into the fiery furnace. And they take, I think, one or two groups per day. That's it, capped at over 100 people per day into this space. So it's very special to see, but you do have to have advanced reservations. I did not reserve in advance with the National Park Service, and I found out about the fiery furnace, and they said, well, we're out there, we're doing it. So I contacted the outfitter and was able to get, we were able to get five of us to go. My in-laws would not have been able to do this hike. So take a look at the pictures from the fiery furnace. The, I believe one of the reasons that they don't allow a lot of people in here is because if you get in here, people have been known to be lost and you, you may not find your way out. So they, it has to be by a guide who understands the, these spaces. Okay. And this is not what you typically would see from people's presentations about Arches National Park because a lot of people may not know about the fiery furnace. But it's definitely like scrambling up on rocks and you know you can see us having to you know, bridge a couple of different spaces just to scramble up through these poles. There's actually a picture of my, my kids going through a spot that's probably 12 inches wide and having to turn sideways to get through it. Or you can walk around it, but for kids, it's more fun to definitely squeeze through. So, so this is 
the fiery furnace. It's it's really something special. It's unique, and you know that you know. You can see in these photos, and for those of you listening on podcast, there's no other people in these pictures. There's very few people uh, in a place like this. So I know people always think about the national parks being overrun, but there are definitely ways to get away from the crowds. Okay. Um, then Canyonlands. I wish we had had more time to see more of Canyonlands and Arches actually, but obviously being Arches and Canyonlands kind of toward the back end of the trip, we were running out of time. So um, we didn't have as much time to explore, but definitely still some great things to see from the rim um, and uh, Arches there. One of the things we at Canyonlands is known for is the dark sky in Moab and in that area and Canyonlands in particular. So we actually did a, um, night sky night sky viewing with uh, a local astronomer at the top of a plateau at Canyonlands and that was pretty cool we had to reserve that in advance and he um this gentleman is part of red rock astronomy i don't know if he's still doing them because this was seven or eight years ago but he actually took met, met you up on a mesa at Canyonlands and brought a huge telescope out and let, allowed you to see different stars and planets and talked about the skies and and I believe he had some Native American history to him, so he was able to talk about it through the lens of, of someone with Native American history and background and the way they really revere the stars and, and the planet. So. Um, we also went to Dead Horse State Park because of course, when you're on a trip like this and Dead Horse is this close, you can't miss it. It's only 31 miles northwest of Moab, so we got to fit it in. And, uh, and it was really neat because it's about 2,000 feet above the Colorado River. And you can see it's just, you know, a spectacular sight. Many of you have probably seen views of Dead Horse Point State Park and not realized it for it's, I think it's famous in a lot of movies and things like that. But um, they, it's very dry. They only get 10 inches of precipitation per year there. So Again, very, very dry up in this space. Uh, but there are, it's very well known in Moab and at Dead Horse State Park for their mountain biking trails. And they have uh, um, great maps of them in all the brochures and stuff that I have. For, for all of these places, I kind of collect all these brochures. So if anyone's interested, I have the brochures from pretty much everywhere we went. You can see Zion, Dead, Dead Horse. Canyonlands. So I've got all the maps, but the National Park Service websites and the state park websites are also fantastic sources for all these things. And I put all the maps together in advance. Okay, this is the, the last site that we'll see um, is the, in Moab, the Hell's Revenge Trail. And I call this a bucket list experience because my mother-in-law, of course, they, they love this trip, but they said, my mother-in-law's comment was, this is one thing that I, I didn't know needed to be on my bucket list in my life. And now that I've done it, it, I get to check it off. She said, we went in a, with the Moab Tourism Center, these little, you get to drive it four by four vehicles, um, drive on a tr famous trail called the Hell's Revenge Trail. And we did the sunset tour so that we could go see sunset over the, the Colorado River. So if you look at, we had, eight of us so we had a guide drive one vehicle and then my husband Tim drove the second vehicle so that eight of us uh, excuse me seven of us got to fit in so you can see the trail okay so do not try this at home these are the types of roads there uh, for those of you on the podcast there are vehicles that are literally at 60 degrees filled with people going over crazy rocks. These, this is not something you want to do by yourself. If you don't know where you're going, you could easily, I can picture getting into some serious trouble out here, but uh, fantastic with a guide um, and just being able to, this is so fun. I would, I would fly back to Moab just to do this again. So, so I would really encourage any of you to go and, and do this. The cool part is you can do it with a guide um, and a driver or you can do it by driving yourself. And of course, there'll be someone in a vehicle showing you where to go and where not to go. Okay. 
and all for the payoff of seeing sunset over the mighty Colorado River on our last real sightseeing day. After this, we had to drive the six and a half hours back to Las Vegas and fly out. So this is sort of a nice way to cap off a stunning, stunning trip. So just a few words of advice, and I think a lot of these already mentioned along the way, definitely plan ahead as much as possible. Um, all my trips I make a massive binder filled with all the notes, the spreadsheets. Each spot has a tab in the binder filled with notes about what to see and do, articles that I've published, uh, that I've printed about what to see and do in different places. And then this kind of becomes the, you know, this, this is sort of my sidekick on the trip. Is this my binder of how, how to get through all of this? Um, like uh, you had asked about food, definitely if you can get places with kitchen and pack picnics, it's, it's great. It saves lots of time and lots of money and you probably eat healthier. I mentioned not counting on Wi-Fi, internet, GPS all the time. Um, take maps and guidebooks. It's also a good way to teach your kids how to read a map. <laughs> um, I think my kids, we need to teach a little bit more of that. Um, definitely the visitor centers and the rangers are your friends. So spend time checking in at all of them for the things that they offer. Always, I've never been to a ranger program that I thought was not worth the time. Um, find ways to be hands-free. Um, because that way you can put your, you know, reusable water bottles and phones and cameras on lanyards and stuff. Just uh, definitely easier. Wear hats and sturdy shoes or boots that are broken in before you go. Do not try to break in a new pair of shoes on a trip like this. Pack light, bring layers and do laundry. Even things that you can just wash in the sink. Uh, I love just the sort of lightweight Columbia outwear because you can wash it in the sink, hang it up and it's dry for the next day. It's just awesome. Quick drying clothes are definitely the best for a trip like this and bring lots of layers because it can be 40 at night and 100 in the day. And so you just need to kind of have that range with you. And by all means, the last point is savor every moment of a trip like this. This is the one that my kids keep saying, we want to go back. So it's, I think it's probably getting to be time, but we need to go back. So I think that's it. Are there any questions? Any in the chat that I've missed? I have a question. My, my question is um, in regards to getting your park passes. How far in advance did you do park passes? Um, so that's a great question. Uh, we actually have, I bought the, the national park pass. I bought the annual pass just so that it would make it faster. I just bought one online and they mailed it to me. You can see I even have the envelope still. But um, yeah, hang it in your vehicle, good to go. I mean, I think the, just just being able to go to any of the national parks, but to hit six at a time, whew, stunning. And there are places that we didn't get to see, obviously like Monument Valley, Page, Arizona, is supposed to be great for the slot canyons. I mean, you could easily add, you know, weeks to this trip if you had the time to just really immerse yourself further in any one of these parks, you could spend a lot of time, but we packed a lot in, in 15 days. Any other questions? I think we need some more national park forums. That, that would be fun. We'll, we'll see what other ones we can come up with. Okay, that sounds great. We're poking at one in particular, I think. I think I think you are poking at one in particular. Okay, I wanna hear about backpacking. That backcountry, backcountry and glacier, that should be one of I our have a lot of lessons of what not to do, so. <laughs> Excellent, yeah. I don't think there's anything we would do completely differently. I just, just uh, having kind of, a, there was always more to do than we had time for. And so just knowing what that short list would be and fitting in what you could and then kind of saying, hey, we'll have to catch it the next time. But honestly, when I, when my, the kids and I go on a multi-generational trip like this, one of the first things we talk about is whatever grandma and grandpa want comes first, because this might be their only time to see this. And it probably will be their only time to see this. So whatever they want to see comes first, because you have a lot of time to get to come back and see these things and to emerge more in them. So I would say that's one thing I would suggest. If you do do a multi-generational trip, prioritize around the first 
who may not always have a chance to see as much of it again. That totally makes sense. Uh, I think we're probably about out of time, so I want to thank you for putting this wonderful presentation together. It's been just a fantastic just journey through your trip, and and thank you for, for everything. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and for joining. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you have a chance to get out to Utah soon. For those of you who might have listened on the podcast, uh, I think just listening to it was fascinating, and if you want to uh, sync up with the slides remember those are available on the website too thank you so much deborah thank you to brandon to everybody else who was a part of it uh, this has been belief beat thanks for being a part of it uh, whenever you listen bye for now